This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. So let's go ahead and have some prayer as we begin. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, we appreciate all that you've already done in our lives so far at this conference here in Houston. And Lord, we pray that as we go to another hour of listening to practical advice as well as uh, biblical insights, that your Spirit would guide us into all truth. And Father, that you may show us things that we could never have seen were your spirit not present here this afternoon. As we offer ourselves up for your blessing, we trust that you will not only speak through us, but you'll speak to us. And Lord, that we'll be able to walk away with a better understanding and better equipped to tackle these aspects of relationship. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, this afternoon, as we continue on in our exploration of relationships, and advising love is what we've talked about. Uh, we've, we've called this one advising love's commitment. Advising love's commitment. Now, we talked about love's beginning. We talked about love's growth. Um, and, of course, we touched upon these things. We recognized that we had to make choices in what we are able to share. And a lot of these things are really very interconnected. So to talk about them in one session, you feel like you'd be repeating yourself to bring it up again, but it's equally relevant. So we tried our best to kind of isolate content that was very, very specifically relevant to that area of relationships that we wanted to speak to. Um, and so please believe that a lot of things that we've talked about this morning do apply to engagement, do apply to marriage and other parts of a relationship. And the later ones that we'll, we'll talk about, you'll see those things applying also to attraction and courtship and things like that. But for us, we wanted to be very focused on that specific area that we are targeting. So here we're looking at engagement and wedding. And we entitled this commitment because engagement is defined as a formal agreement to get married. Now, why do we use the word formal? Because we said that a courtship, as opposed to dating, is this relationship that we are building with the aim towards marriage. Right? If you're dating, you're just out there having fun. But if you're courting, that means I'm spending time with this person with an eye towards marriage. Now, as you step into engagement and you decide as a young man to make that proposal and invite that to now go public and say, now we are making a public agreement to get married. That means not only are you and I privy to this relationship and where it's going, we believe that we have enough evidence to start going even deeper. And that's really what engagement is all about. It doesn't mean, okay, now we've been courting, now we're engaged, and so it's all downhill from here. That's exactly what it doesn't mean. And so we wanna talk a little bit about the Jewish process. This thing is always slightly off. And my, my design eye cannot handle it. So. So take your Bibles, go with me to the book of Luke, chapter 22. Luke, chapter 22. Years ago, um, I spoke at Andrews University and had shared this particular um, concept with those young people um, about some things that I researched about some cultural aspects of how the Jews went about their uh, engagement process on their way to marriage and what that could kind of teach us about it. Luke chapter 22, and we know that Jesus is instituting the last supper. So let's start in verse 14. So it says, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Verse 15, then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it 
until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus is associating the drinking of that cup, right? He pours into one cup. How many cups? One cup, but it is shared among 13 men. And in this cup, he says, for you to drink from this cup, you are entering into a covenant with me. Entering into a what? A covenant. And guess what a covenant is? An agreement. Now, the, the very interesting fact is, is that when a young Jewish man back in those days was interested in a young Jewish girl, or even in any, any young lady in the Eastern cultures at that time, it was always an understanding that you couldn't just go to a girl and be like, hey girl, how you doing? You know, I came here to GYC. I'm from uh, San Luis Obispo. And you know, I'm just, just out here trying to serve the Lord. And <laughs> you know, I saw you over there giving some Bible studies. I was moved. <laughs> and so I decided that, uh, you know, I'd like to get to know you better. And so, you know, she decides, you know, whether she's interested or not or how she responds. And there's this awkward space that kind of starts happening and or she starts getting super giggly and tells all her friends back at the hotel room. You know, it's like, oh, there's this guy. He's super fine. It's like, and as they start talking and there he is. And of course, we know what Sabbath is going to be up in here, you know, coming up in a couple days. People about to break out those outfits they never worn. They want people to know that they are available. So, <laughs> but you recognize that in our culture, this is what, we do. This is how we approach things. But in a Jewish culture, if I saw a young lady, I couldn't just go up to her and be like, hey, how you doing? Da, 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 da. I'm from the tribe of Levi, all this stuff. No, 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 no. You had to go back home to your father. And remember, we read this morning about Samson mm -hmm. and Samson wanted that woman from Timnah, right? What did he do? He went to his parents and said, what? Get her for me because he couldn't go do it on his own. Because culturally, you don't just go take a girl and her parents have nothing to say about it. So in those days, you as a Jewish person went to your dad, then your dad went to her dad, and they had to work out a dowry because they're saying, hey, we, if you marry our daughter, we're losing some work in the house. We're losing some hands, you know, we're losing some people to help cook, clean, help, you know, Rachel was out there watering the sheep. So to lose a daughter was to lose a worker. So they say, look, you got to pay me. And so this is where Jacob or J Jacob was working for seven years, right, to pay for his wife. Imagine that's how much of a helper Rachel was. Seven years of pay. Now, moving forward in the story, after the two fathers come to an agreement, they decide to throw a banquet. And in this particular banquet that they throw, they decide that in this particular um, setting, all her family, all his family, and as they get together in this banquet, all eating and drinking, and everyone knows what the banquet is about because at the center in the front of the room is the father and the son and the father and the young lady. And they're sitting at a table and there's one cup. And at some point in time in this, uh, you know, engagement, he decides to take some grape juice and pour it into that cup. Everyone stops partying at that point because they know what's about to happen. He drinks from the cup and then he offers the cup to the Jewish girl. And at this point in time, she has to make a decision exactly what she's going to do. Is she going to drink that cup or is she not? So if she pushes the cup back over, then what happens is, is the fact that she's saying, I'm not entering into a covenant with you. I'm not interested in going forward in this relationship. But if she drinks the cup, that means she's interested in the relationship. She's accepting a public formal agreement to get married. And here Jesus says, 
I've been longing to drink this cup with you. He's drawing upon this idea, which is a very common Jewish understanding, that we were entering into a lifelong commitment. But notice in the same thing, he says, I won't drink this again with you until a future time. Because as soon as she drank that cup, well, let's assume that she drank the cup and she accepted his formal offer for marriage. Then he made a statement. We're going to go to John chapter 14. John in the 14th chapter. So John 14. John 14. Um, he comes back. And Jesus is talking to his disciples. We're very, very familiar with, um, with this particular passage. And it says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is what the guy is telling the young lady in the Jewish banquet, in front of everyone. Because at this point in time, they both know that they're not going to be hanging out and spending all this time together. He looks at her and says, look, don't let your heart be troubled because she knows as soon as she accepted that particular thing, she decided that she had to now go and start preparing to take care of a home. Also, he had to go back and do something. And notice what the text goes on to say. In my father's house are many what? Mansions or the Greek word is rooms. There are many rooms. And he goes on and he says, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to do what? Prepare a place for you. You see, in order to get married, he had to build onto his father's house a place for him and his bride. And he could not get married until he had finished preparing that place for his bride. Can you imagine that in our day, right, you couldn't get married until you learned how to build a house? Amen. You know when you got married, that brother wasn't lazy. Because if he's lazy, you ain't never going to get married. You will never be married. But here's the condition, right? The condition is, is that when he's building the house onto his father's house for his bride, it's not done when he says it's done. It's only done when his father says, this is worthy of your bride. So can you imagine again when Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour. The only person who knows is who? The Father. Because God is telling Jesus that, guess what? You can't go back until what you are building for them is worthy. That should sober us about heaven. Mm -hmm. But to get to our point, after he does this, I want you to go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. So he goes to start building onto his father's house, but she also has work that she needs to do. So as she leaves that banquet, she goes back home to be with her mother now that she's engaged. And Jesus makes a statement that is referencing another cultural fact at that time. Verse 35 of Luke chapter 12. The Bible says, let your waist be girded and your lamps what? Burning. Burning. And you yourselves be like men who are doing what? Wait for their what? Master, when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him when? Immediately. You see, he's using the prophetic significance of the fact that lamps being burning is associated with waiting for someone to return so that when they knock, you open. Are you tracking? But here's the irony. In prophecy, the church is not the bride. The city in the New Jerusalem is the bride. We don't have time to get into that. But in a prophetic context, we are the virgins. We are not the bride. So we have other roles outside of that. But in terms of Christ receiving his kingdom, that is the idea of the marriage in prophecy. But in terms of the Jewish culture, for her to go home and start learning how to cook, how to clean, how to take care of a house. Every night she went to sleep, she knew that you never know when he's going to finish the house. Isn't that correct? Mm -hmm. Because who knows the day? His father. 
When his father says the house is good, he will be on his way to go get his bride. But she doesn't know, her mom doesn't know, the guy doesn't know. So there's no sense pestering your fiancé. When are you coming? Hey, you know, the house is halfway done, but until his father says it's good to go, he ain't coming back. So every night before she went to sleep, if he was to come in the evening, she would leave a lamp burning in the window. And that lamp was to do two things. It communicated, one, that if he came in the middle of the night, ain't no street lights, right, back in those days. There wasn't like people had switches where you could just be like, click, 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 oh, someone's here at the door. No, you had a lamp. And that lamp was put in the window so he knew where to find her if he came in the middle of the night to take her to the wedding. Can you imagine, ladies, you had to get ready in one night? Hey, it's time to get married. Boom. Get up. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm here. House is done. Because when that brother is ready to get married, he just built a house. He ain't trying to wait. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so he comes in, she gets up, she's coming out. And as he's drawing her out, they're going to go off to the wedding. And the virgins have the lamps to light the way to the wedding. Are you tracking this? Now, the second reason why those lamps are there is to let also the groom know that her love for him is still the same. If he comes to the house and he doesn't see a lamp, it communicates to him that her affections have gone to someone else. So can you imagine that Jesus is preparing a place for us that only God could approve? And after doing all of that, when he returns a second time, he finds our lamps not burning. Because our affections have gone to this world. To someone else in this Jewish engagement process when he finally came to get his bride her lamp was burning he found her he takes her to the wedding and they go there to get married and we always communicate to people and I'm speaking we as my wife and I that when people are, in, are dealing with engagement, in this Jewish illustration, it reminds us of some very key point. And that very basic key point is, you're engaged, but you're not married. Not yet. It is not until you go before witnesses and before God, and you make a death commitment to another person, then you are married. Then they are yours and you are theirs. But until that day, you are engaged. Now, why is this significant? You know, my friend uh, Angelo, we used to have this conversation a lot uh, with other young guys because they'd be like, yo, man, check out my girlfriend, man. That's my girl. <laughs> Pictures on the phone and everything. And we say, look, bro, she's not yours yet. And he's like, you know, what are you saying? And so Angelo would say, so if, if you were engaged, right, you're trying to get married. And let's say two months before the wedding, you decide, you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I want to go through with this. Like, I'm feeling kind of nervous. Maybe we should call it off, postpone it. Two months. He said, would that be wrong? And they're like, no, that's not wrong. I mean, people probably not going to be happy. <laughs> Might be out of a little money. But that's not wrong. Then Angelo would say, okay, what if it was two weeks before the wedding? You get married two Sundays from now. And you decide, you know, I'm getting a little cold feet. Would that be wrong? It's like, I mean, that's not wrong. It's kind of messed up. But it's not wrong. And then Angelo would say, what if it was the day of the wedding? She's putting on her wedding dress with her mom in there, her maid of honor, makeup, the whole nine. And then get a knock at the door. Do, do, do. Hey, I need to talk. You're not supposed to see me on the wedding day. No, it's important. Look, I know we had this whole thing planned. We got people in the church. 
but I, I just don't think I can go forward with this. Would that be wrong? <laughs> Every time I give this illustration, it's always the women staring at me like, you know that's wrong. <laughs> and all the guys are like, man, that brother's got courage. It's like... <laughs> But when he goes in to tell her that, is it wrong? And he said, man, I mean, you might get hit a couple times. You know what I'm saying? Parents might be looking for you. So you might want to have a getaway car. But it's not wrong. And he says, until you come before that audience and you stand before God and these witnesses and you make a commitment, it says, repeat after me, I such and such, I such do solemnly swear to take such and such as my lawfully wedded wife to have and to hold for better or for worse for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health and I do swear to cherish her above all others, forsaking them as long as we both shall live. When you say I do, then you just cross the line. Up until that moment, you can always go back. It may hurt. It may not feel good. But you're not married. But once you cross that line and you come to somebody crying, man, life is hard. My marriage is hard. Man, you married. Just as someone came to me earlier today, and they said, yeah, but what if this and what if the person? I said, look, when you got married, you said for better or for worse. It just got worse. That's what you said. So don't tell me, oh, things are getting difficult in my marriage or my relationship. Well, did you not say for better or for worse? Yes or no? You did. Or the young people like to write their own vows nowadays. Oh, you know, I'll love you. I'll make mistakes. I'll do this, crying and everything. Now the relationship, did you not say, even when you are messing up, I'm still going to show you Christ's love. Well, here you go. Show Christ's love. And in this vein, this is why we call it advising love's commitment. Because it's not... This period of time, we take for granted as if, well, we're engaged, so pretty much it's all downhill from here, man. It's just planning the wedding, getting married. Wrong. And when we look at the Jewish approach, we can take some things culturally from that, of which Jesus drew from to illustrate, right? They're not principles, but they're illustrations to show the fact that just because you drank that cup, you still got stuff to do. And if you don't handle your business like he doesn't build his house and you don't keep your lamps burning, ain't going to be no wedding. Sorry, that's not correct English. There will not be a wedding. <laughs> Sometimes my mom listens to my sermons, so she's like, stop saying ain't. <laughs> so in this sense, we wanted to introduce this process so that when you think about all the work that has to be done, in order to get ready to have a successful marriage, engagement is that time to do it. And we find it rich in Jewish culture and tradition and how they approached it. And Christ drew from that to help the disciples understand the hope and what was going on. And Christ going away. Why am I going? To prepare a place for you. But this cup that we're drinking is a covenant. Just so that you always drink this cup you do show the Lord's coming until he comes and his death and what he went through. So anyway, <laughs> let's move forward. Perhaps we should have started with that or ended with that. I know, right? I know you just had to lay that down. So I'll let you go ahead. Amen. Amen. But <laughs> as we go into our key takeaways, <laughs> our key takeaways, the first one is that engagement is not marriage. And I think we heard that. We understand that. Um, it's probably something you're going to hear over and over again because that's pretty much the crux of it. Um, but it's not marriage. It's just another, another um, 
step in the progression to that. Um, the belief that God can bless a marriage to this person and making it a public and formal direction of your relationship. So it's not marriage, but it's a public declaration of what the next phase that you guys want to enter in together. Um, which is more than just, you know, we like to post the picture on Facebook of the ring and the hand, and we like, oh, okay. But there's a lot more work that goes into it. At least we should take that period and have um, put, be putting on even greater glasses or greater goggles to really be um, looking at the situation and, and seeing if this is really what we want to enter into with this person. Do we really want to keep our lamp burning for them? Or, you know, we have the option to take it out the window. So do it while you have the chance. Now, one of the clearest biblical illustrations of this is Mary and Joseph. Take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew in the first chapter. Now, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about engagement, but the little that it does talk about it is helpful. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Are you there? All right. The Bible says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph. That means they were engaged to get married. So the context of Christmas is all surrounding engagement. They were engaged to get married before they came together. The Bible is very clear. Before they came together. So before you are married... You should not be coming together. Amen? Amen? Physically, you should not be coming together. And you know what I mean by that. Some people think because they're engaged, well, you know, we basically marry. Well, when you basically have a pregnancy on your hands <laughs> and people start counting the months down from when the baby was born to when you got married, they're like, ah, oh, hold on a second. This is not lining up. <laughs> it's like people start raising questions. It also means you shouldn't be cohabiting. Joseph and Mary were not living together before they were married. So this whole coming together and people think, well, we're just going to go and move in, shack up, all this kind of stuff before we're even married. No. It was very clear and unequivocal in the text that Mary and Joseph were engaged and this was before they were coming together. They had not made that decision yet and they had not taken that step because they knew it was inappropriate, the Bible says in verse 18 that she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible has to give us that information because Joseph didn't have it. Otherwise, this story would have made a lot of sense initially. Hey, man, Joseph and Mary were engaged, etc. Then she was pregnant. What? You'll be thinking the same thing Joseph was thinking. I don't know about you, but as a guy... If your girlfriend or your fiance comes back before your wedding and she's like, hey, man, I'm with child of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> You'd be like, right. <laughs> That's just hard to swallow. Even Joseph couldn't swallow that. And Mary's telling his brother the truth. Look, man, an angel came to my room. He told man his name's going to be Jesus. Right. Okay. <laughs> So you're getting pregnant outside of marriage, and that's going to be the son of God. The child that you're going to give birth to. This is a hard one to swallow. So the Bible says in verse 19, then Joseph, her husband. Look, it even calls him her husband. It says, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away. How? Privately. So they're basically married, and Joseph is, is, is basically looking at the situation and saying, look, we haven't even, you know, um, what we call consummated our marriage. We haven't slept together. We haven't consummated this thing. So he's saying, look, she's pregnant. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to have to just pull out of this thing. But I'm not going to do it publicly, because if you look at Deuteronomy, right, there's a whole bunch of public stuff that's associated with this that would not be very pleasant for Mary. But in Mary's experience, right, she has no power over this situation. She can't stop Joseph from doing what he's about to do. And God knows that. And this is also a very subtle lesson to women as well. 
she saw that Joseph in his mind, he could not stomach this thing. She wasn't sitting here trying to argue and twist his arm and manipulate situations to make him go forward. Mary, from the very beginning, as to why God chose her, was she made herself a servant and submitted unto God. She was humble. And in this moment of time, what greater embarrassment could Mary have faced? As a girl who has kept herself, who has been faithful, and now God wants to come in and be like, oh, you're pregnant, but it's actually a supernatural occurrence, and now the very guy you've been waiting to spend the rest of your life with is like, I'm out. Because God chose you for a specific work. And he's trying to swallow this in his mind. So in this experience between Joseph and Mary, we see the fact that Joseph being the man that he was, was like, I'm not trying to embarrass you. That's how much respect and love that he had for Mary. He couldn't swallow it, but he wasn't able to go for it either. Because he probably partially believed her and partially didn't. But he had no evidence otherwise. In this particular vein, he decides to put her away privately. In other words, he was pulling out. In his mind, until this thing was officially consummated and we were going forward and we're coming together, Joseph was like, you can still pull out. Even then. And Mary was a good woman. And he knew that. But he felt as if he could not go forward with God's blessing with this situation in his mind. It was just not something he could handle. So what does God do? The Bible says in verse 20, it says, but while he thought about these things. That means it was on the brother's mind. It wasn't an easy decision for Joseph. Joseph was sitting here thinking about these things and wondering and debating within himself. I don't know, maybe... Maybe I'm making a mistake. Maybe, I mean, Mary's always been a pure woman, always been humble, always been godly. It's just hard for me to just take what this is. Whoever heard of a woman getting married outside of any sexual intercourse? It, it just didn't happen. It's like, you don't have any examples. So you can only imagine what Joseph is going through. And right here, babe. Yeah, go ahead just so that we don't get ahead. So we see that there was a situation here even where Joseph saw he had a reason not to go forward, right? So he was not, many times we think that we should not or that we should go forward no matter what. And Joseph here, even for himself, shows us that we don't have to. Um, and we should not go forward no matter what. Um, I was thinking about how, um, just lost the thought. It's all right. Okay. Um, I guess continue that. Okay. You the boss. So. It will so. come back. <laughs> so you, you face a very, very unique situation in Mary and Joseph. Got it. You got it? Yes. Go ahead. So earlier we were talking about our non-negotiables. Remember the, the list that we were making, talking about um, the, God's requirements or Abraham's requirements in the previous, in the previous um, session. Um, and we were talking about how it's important for us to have that list of non-negotiables for ourselves. Um, for some, what Joseph was experiencing here, maybe uh, it's okay. I don't mind, you know, this was a mistake and I can handle this. I don't mind being a, a parent to a child that is not mine. Um, uh, for others, it's a clear no. Um, so it's really important for you to know what those non-negotiables are and not to feel as though um, they're not justifiable enough for you to say, to pull out as well. So. And I think that's the biggest thing that we want to bring out from this initial point, right? You got to have your non-negotiables and you got to maintain them no matter what. You compromise now, you will compromise later. And the more you compromise, the less happy you will be. Because guess what? Those standards will return. And you'll be thinking, you know what? I don't want that. Too late. You signed up. So it's better to go without and let it be, that's just not my thing, than to go forward and realize, you know what? I thought I could handle this, but I cannot. That will not only ruin your life, it will ruin the life of another person. Mm -hmm. And not only that, your families, because it's not just you getting married. 
your families are also married. It's a very important point that marriage is not just this selfish thing between me and one person. So anyway, I want to go forward. Oh, um, we looked at Mary and Joseph, and we saw that Joseph immediately sought to end the relationship when he felt that God could not bless. He just could not settle in his mind, and God had to come to him in a dream. He said, look, Joseph, take Mary, your wife. Don't stop this. Go forward. Why? Because this is what it is. And because he had that supernatural experience from God, he was able to go forward. Now, we recognize in, in our lives, God's not always going to intervene the same way he intervened in Joseph's life. But even though God may not give us a vision or visit us in a dream in our sleep, God will still find ways to speak to us in a way that we know that it's him. We've all had those moments where we knew it was God talking to us. Now, we may not be able to describe it. We may not be able to say, oh, when you hear this or when it's three knocks on the table or something, that's how you know it's God talking to you. You may not be able to do that, but you're able to at least say, look, I know in my heart that was God telling me to do that. And in this sense, this is where Joseph was. And he was able to move forward. So now another thing that we wanted to bring out was that engagement can be a very dangerous time for temptation. In Joseph's case, right, there was no issue, there was no sin, there was no breaking out. But we also recognize, as we mentioned earlier, because we feel like we're almost married, there's heavy attraction, the things are flowing, so you just start um, becoming a little more lax on boundaries. And so it's very, very important to really soup up your protection during your engagement because you're spending a lot of personal time together. You're spending a lot of time bonding in terms of emotional intimacy, you're having conflict, and all these things bring you together and are going to drive that passion to want to express that in a physical way. I don't know if you have anything to add oh, to that. Oh, I was just thinking, you know, um, sometimes when we think of marriage, especially females, we think of this is kind of like the climax for us, right? It's like, oh, yes. Um, and I was thinking when I was, for me, um, besides marriage, the other, other thing I can liken it to is going to college or going, to, yeah, going to college. I was the first one in my family to go. And so um, it was like everything was done so that we, I could actually make it. And once I was accepted, um, it was like, wow, this climax has been reached. And then I remember when I got there, it was like, well, what do I do now? Or you become lax. Okay, I made it here, so I don't really have to study as much. Or I need to, I can go explore this or do that. Um, granted, we know with uh, relationships or the, the, um, the physical attraction, etc., all those other things are a little different. But essentially, it's just coming, coming down to we get to a place where we're comfortable and we let our guards down because we think it's smooth sailing from here. There's nothing to worry about. I already, we've already checked off. This guy qualifies in all these different ways. Um, God has approved him, da-da-da. And so we're like, okay, everything is clear. But that's exactly the time when when, um, you know, our friend, the devil, likes to try to come in and, and try to mess up a good thing. And so it's important, um, if not to have more of a guard up and to be more diligent during that time. So one of the things that those of you are taking notes, one exercise you can always do, right, to start clarifying your boundaries is if you look on a, you draw on a piece of paper, you draw a circle or a square, and you cut it in half. Right? And as you cut that square or circle in half, you put your initials on one side and whoever is this other person on the other side. It doesn't have to be relationship related, but in our context, this is your fiance or whoever. As you put that person on the other side, you recognize there is a boundary, right? There's a place when your space ends and that person's space begins. Are you tracking what I'm saying? Now, in that space, right, that line is defined differently on each side. You see, on your side, you have to think about what are those things, right, that I do to him and that I allow him to do to me that communicate to him that he's different from every other man in my life. And on your side as a woman, you have to say, okay, what are the things, I mean, as a guy, you have to say, what are the things that I do to her and what are the things that I allow her to do to me that communicate to her that she's different from every other woman in my life? And this is very important because sometimes guys get confused why a girl is upset when they do things for some other girl. And it's because in her mind, she's like, I thought this was just for me. Now you're just giving this thing out here. So if you give everybody flowers, it doesn't make any difference that I gave you one. 
because it doesn't make you special. And I remember, you know, one of the things for me, you know, was um, going to the gym and exercising. Right. Like I was like, I don't I don't go to the gym and work out with women because I feel like when I'm at the gym and I'm working out, I'm just very like vulnerable. I just start talking and just giving out my whole soul and everything. And so it's like, look, <laughs> there's something about lifting weights and all that kind of stuff that just makes you super vulnerable and relaxed. And so for me, it was always a thing that I can't take a young lady with me to the gym. Some guys can do that. They work out together. It's all cool. For me, that's not cool. Like I can't hang like that. And I had to know that about myself. And so if my wife ever heard of me going to the gym with some other girl, she'd be like, uh, that's a little weird. Because immediately at that time, she knows it's a boundary for me. And in this sense, an engagement, right, if we start doing those things that we know are communicating to that person and communicating to me that I'm special and that he's special and we just keep in that cycle, that's what starts taking it to a point of escalation. And all it takes is a weak moment to be alone. And it will play itself out. And so in that time of engagement, do not ever think that it's okay to succumb to that kind of physical temptation or that it's okay now to let our boundaries down because we're engaged, we're getting married. No, you should actually beef them up and strengthen them and reinforce them. And the last point I have to say on this is that, you know, <laughs> My wife was a very, very good person at managing temptation. And when I met her, I was not very good at managing temptation. You know, for my wife, I used to think Candace was very, very dramatic, right? If she was like, I don't want to eat this cake, she would take a thing outside in the trash or like, you know, just give it away to somebody or something. And for me, I'm like, nah, man, I'm good. You know, just leave it in the fridge. I can manage this thing. And next thing you know, I'm in the cake like... <laughs> I said I wasn't, and everybody else was like, man, you said you weren't going to eat that cake? I know, man, I'm just, I'm struggling right now. <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> I'm like, eating this cake, and I wasn't good at managing it. And Candace was a practical illustration of something my spiritual mother used to tell me. She would say, Sebastian, if you're serious about not going forward in this kind of sin and temptation, you have to make it impossible for it to happen again. Mm -hmm. Impossible. We're not talking about like, you know, I, I mean, I could share another, you know, several stories, but uh, <laughs> we was, my wife was like, do not even think about it. So I'm going to keep moving. <laughs> so <laughs> Pre-marriage counseling is not an automatic stamp of approval for marriage. I think it's probably our pet peeve as a couple is that people will come to us like, hey, I want to get counseling, you know, uh, before, before we get married. And one of the first questions we have to ask people is, are you open to this relationship not working out? Because sometimes people ask you to do counseling and they want you to do their wedding. And my whole thing is if I see things during a premarital counseling that are problematic and I feel like I can't sign off on this, I'm not going to do your wedding. I'm not going to help endorse you, destroy your own life. So in this sense, you know, we recognize that premarital counseling is not something that's just, oh, we all go through it. It's just the required preparation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, ask these questions, think about these topics. That's all well and good. But it's really about you recognizing, hey, here are some deep issues. I had a friend who was engaged. They were going through premarital counseling. And it came out in the sessions that the woman said, I'm not really attracted to her fiance physically. This came out in the premarital session. So he was sitting there shocked. He was blown. I mean, your fiance just basically said, like, physically, you are not attractive to me. <laughs> Point blank. And she said, look, I'm just being honest. Like, I'm attracted to your mind and all these other things. right? But physically, like, I'm not, I'm not feeling you like that. And so the, the counselor, he was trying to manage this thing. <laughs> he said, look, you know, I think what she's trying to communicate is. <laughs> and when, <laughs> when, when my friend came to me, she's like, yeah, I don't know. He just couldn't get over it. Like, he just, and he called off the engagement. And in that sense, right, 
You can look at it and say, oh, and man, it hurts your heart. And I can only imagine how he feels. But on another level, I say, would you like to have found out now or after you got married? Are you following? And so in this sense, this is why we say it's not just an automatic stamp of approval. I guess another pet peeve is when people come and they want to have counseling like six weeks before their marriage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much they're committed <laughs> to being married and they just want you to approve it for them and say yeah. that they did it. But actually it's doing yourself a disservice because um, what we don't realize about pre-marriage counseling is that it, it really opens our eyes to things that are going to happen after um, or things that we should be considering. Um, what, what occurs after we say I do, the, kind of like the what now. Um, and many times the reasons why we, be, we become disappointed in our marriages or in our relationships is that the expectations that we have are not being met. And many times it's because those expectations have never even been voiced or heard or articulated. And so we're expecting something that we never shared and the other person has no idea that we expect. And that's where conflict comes in. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah. Amen. Sorry, it goes to our next. All right. So we say here are some critical areas um, that uh, Candace kind of highlights in terms of premarital counseling. Babe, do you want to kind of talk about these? Okay, sure. I mean, we all know money is always an issue. Um, so taking financial matters, talking about the, the reality of that. So what, what your individual finance plans are. Things like, you know, how much debt are you coming with? Um, are we going to have a joint bank account? How are we going to tackle these things? Um, are we going to be having, um, what's our plan for repaying these things? Would you be paying it yourself? Is it our combined thing? Um, just having, kind of mapping a way forward is how you both view money and finances so that um, when the challenge, challenges do come up, you already have, you're already on the same page where it comes to, to the finances. So to lessen the strain that, that typically comes um, during the first couple years of marriage. And you also recognize that money, financial issues is the number one reason for a divorce, is disagreements on money. So definitely, I, I want to second that as a very, very important area to discuss how you're going to spend money, how you buy things, house, debt, all that kind of stuff is just critical. I think the other area of just our expectations for marriage in general um, like, why do you want to get married? What does marriage mean to you? And we're not talking about, you know, the cookie cutter response of, you know, God created marriage and um, <laughs> it's supposed to better our spiritual, our physical. I mean, all those things are great, but let's talk about why it is that you personally are looking to, um, to be married. What does it mean to you? Um, uh, what you expect your spouse to contribute to the marriage? Um, what, you ex what you expect to contribute to the marriage, um, looking even back uh, at what, what you both experienced or, or saw as examples of marriages around you. Because many times we don't realize how much those things influence how we view it and then how we ourselves think it is supposed to be. Yep. Um, so really taking the time to think about that and also talk about that um, and find where there, are, there may be some challenging spots or um, ways that you're not seeing things the same way so that we can, you can carve out together what you want your marriage to mean together. And one of the things that, um, you know, we always start with in every uh, premarital counseling session, usually the first or second session, is that we, we outline three basic expectations in every relationship, right? The first thing is you have unrealized expectations, Right? So you have to start with the fact that there are expectations that you have of another person that are not going to be realized or that are not realized. The second type are unexpressed expectations. Right? So a lot of times in our, in our marriage and engaging in this, we don't always express our expectations, but we respond when they're not met. And then we're wondering where these conflicts came from. And the third one is unrealistic expectations. So sometimes you expressed it, it's not realized, but the reality is, it's not realistic. No person can live up to that. You know, one time I had to tell, you know, a young woman in a session, I said, look, you want this brother to cross land and sea, climb the highest mountain, swim to the deepest ocean, 
right, just so you will barely accept him. Like, that's not a relationship, right? That's like, a, you know, some sort of Greek amphitheater, amphitheater gladiator kind of stuff. Like, oh, he's going to win me. I'm Tarzan. You, Jane. Like, this is, that's not a real relationship. You're making his brother go through every single thing, all the rigmarole, just so you can give him one little ounce of, you know, of affection. And I'm like, that's not appropriate. And that's unrealistic. You just can't expect a person to do that. So it's very important with the marriage expectations. Uh, conflict resolution. I think we'll talk about that more in our, in our marriage, um, uh, the next session on marriage. Um, but just, again, kind of looking forward, uh, looking back and also looking forward, looking back to how you saw conflict handled in your family um, and, uh, and how you intend to do, how you intend to solve conflict in your own marriage. Again, this also requires from even our, uh, the first session of having that, that sense of like, or taking that time for introspection and knowing where you are, like knowing what your push areas are, knowing, um, just being honest about those things that, that can trigger conflict and how you yourself resolve or, or face conflict. Some of us retreat, some of us go in when we need to just calm down. Um, so taking the time to really maybe even carve out, um, as we'll talk about later, carving out ways that we intend to manage how we um, take care of the conflict that, that, may, that will arise, because it's going to arise. Um, so um, got religion, spirituality. You just want to make sure you're matched on those kind of things. Um, we recognize that having worship together is something that's expected, um, but not everybody understands how to have family worship, especially if a person was converted from the world and didn't have a family like that. Those are discussions you want to have about how do we want to run our family worship? How do we want to worship together? Morning and evening, just evening, just morning. Um, are we going to read through a text? Are we going to have a devotional? You know, it all depends on how that conversation goes and what you expect religion and spirituality to look like in your home. Very, very important. And even in, on a more practical level, you know, um, we recognize, well, Sebastian and I, we have very different styles of, of the way that we... <laughs> um, he likes to be alone and, and to have his personal time quietly. I'm more of a, I want to do everything together. And so kind of figuring out, even for us, um, how... how engaging in spiritual things was going to be how we would do it in a way where it, it still gave each one of us what we needed separately and then also combined together collectively. So taking time to think of, to figure out how that, or to think about um, how that will play out. Um, division of labor, you know, I know many times we think that's such a minor detail, but when you're living with a person day in and day out, those things matter because it all <laughs> builds up. It's That's like, right. man, if the he doesn't in the keep sink. putting this fork like this, or can he please just change the toilet paper roll, or, you know, so is he going to <laughs> <laughs> take out the trash? So taking the time to talk about how you want to divide the labor. It may seem very, like, not important, but it really helps later on establish some things Yeah, absolutely, because if you consistently, persistently fail to take care of your household responsibilities... Right. You'll have problems. And I recall, you know, it used to hurt me that I would forget to take out the trash and I would see Candace carrying out the trash. And I'd be like, man, I got to get the." So this one morning, sure enough. Right. I'm sleeping in and I come out and all I hear is that beeping sound. And I realize it's the garbage truck. Because I said, babe, just don't take out the trash. Like if I forget, just leave the trash. Like do not take out the trash ever. <laughs> She's like, OK. Now, obviously, that's a problem because the trash builds up. <laughs> Where are you going to put it? So this morning, right, it was cold, super cold. In Boston, I had like a robe on and some house slippers. <laughs> and I grabbed the trash and ran outside. I was flying through the house. She was like, where is he doing? Because for me, it was like, look, you know, how can you be out here preaching and doing all this stuff and you can't take care of basic household responsibilities? And it's like, look, you can't, you can't be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm excellent in this, but you failing in basic stuff that doesn't even require a uh, college education. Like, pick up the bag, carry it to the other can. Like, <laughs> before Friday. <laughs> it's like, that's all you have to do. And so, 
for me, it was the, the division of labor is very huge. And also, you get these cultural inheritances of how housework is managed, right? So you marry some brother who thinks, man, the woman cooks, cleans, cuts, builds, construction. She does everything. <laughs> it's like, I, just I don't do that stuff. <laughs> and one of the things that, you know, my wife and I talked about in terms of division of labor was the fact, like, you know, I don't deal with anything with the bowels. So I'm like plumbing and all that kind of stuff. I will call the local plumber, <laughs> you know, but stuff gets backed up and all that. That's just not my thing. Like, I, I, she's like, babe, just get the plunger. Put this down. I'm like, nah, nah, nah. We need to call the plumber. <laughs> I was like, just the whole stuff is splashing. I'm like, nah, man. Which takes us into children and parenting because it just gets worse when that comes around. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, so in that sense, like, she already knew going into the marriage, like, if the toilet is backed up, right, I'm not going to be handling that. Um, <laughs> and also, of course, like she said, children in parenting, um, recognizing that sometimes as fathers, you know, and husbands, we just want to do all the fun stuff. We don't want to do the hardcore stuff, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, let's play with the kids. Oh, the diaper needs to be changed. Like, okay, and the diapers are over there. <laughs> Help yourself. But again, you have these cultural inheritances of what I saw in my house or what someone else saw in their house. And, you know, you get a woman like my wife who grew up with, you know, a single mom, very strong woman. You know, she's not necessarily looking at I'm about to do everything for you. You know, when you grow up in a strong woman home uh, who is very independent, has her own mind, is intelligent. There's some ways that we can manage this. Right. And I think that it's very important that you have those conversations about what those expectations are. And, you know, in my house, my mom was also a single mom. And so I felt like certain responsibilities were also placed upon me because I was the oldest. So it's like, well, you just have to do this because there was no dad. So even carving out that whole experience from myself was something unique that wasn't necessarily modeled to me. Um, and so having those conversations are very helpful. We just have a few more as we wrap up. So um, just a few popular beliefs and misconceptions. One is that um, sometimes we think that, oh, you know, this thing he does or she does, it, yeah, it's kind of irritating or uh, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. We have an issue with it. We take issue with it, but we kind of just put it on the rug, say, ah, oh, when we get married, I think that will change. Just want to let you all know, marriage is not a change machine. That's right. Not. N-O-T. And so... Um, I guess the best way to think of it is if this person were not to change at all, I guess oh, this is a good indication for us too in our engagement phase, if this person were not to change at all and if in mm. fact they were to get worse, would I, still want to, would I still want to be married to them? Meaning would I, it's not, of course, we know it's not just um, receiving the benefits of this person, but will I still be willing to put in to be, to be a tool to minister to this person even in those times? Right. Um, and that's very sobering, but um, yeah, we need to realize that marriage is not going to change things. Um, so either you talk about, you need, it's very important during this engagement time to really talk about those things. And again, non-negotiables, you need to know what those are. And recognize that marriage is not only is it not going to change, it's going to make it worse. Because you're going to see it all the time. You know, before it's like you go to your house, I go to my house, and you know, she may do this one thing that gets on my nerves. We talk about it. But, hey, you know, I'm in a relationship. We're having our first argument. You know, we think this stuff is cute. When you get married, it's not cute anymore. <laughs> because it's happening all the time. And sometimes it's happening in front of your family or it's happening in front of friends. And then people start getting embarrassed and start acting some kind of way. And, again, these just keep creating other issues around them. So I think it's very important, you know, you know, babe, in terms of what you're highlighting in that, not being a change machine is directly connected to the fact that it's also going to get worse. It's just going to magnify these things in your life. Now, I know we keep pointing out the negatives, right? We're only doing that so that, because I think we already see what the positives or we're always focusing on what those positive things are, the benefits. So we just want to also bring to light, you know, what, what if this other side were to happen? Because in the same token, marriage can be a vehicle that God uses to help us to grow. And that's what it should be. Um, but we should also be considering, well, if, if this were to go the other way, would I still be willing? So just wanted to, to make sure we're clear on that, too. Gotcha. 
Sorry. <laughs> you go. Once engaged, it's too late to say no. I think we addressed this, <laughs> yes. this point. Uh, obviously, it is not too late to say no. Once you come down, they say, I'd like to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. such and such, it's too late. So <laughs> at that point in time, but engagement is not too late. Um, it's too costly to call off a wedding. You know, a lot of people use this excuse, and it is a misconception. Oh, this would be bad stewardship, you know, for me to call off my wedding. I'm like, you know what would be bad stewardship? <laughs> it's for you to get married to, to the this wrong person. person. That's bad. You just wasted your whole life. You worried about a couple thousand dollars. <laughs> Man, you can get back a couple thousand dollars. You can't get your life back. And it's so true. You can't get your life back. That's the last one. Um, so here in terms of some practical counsel, you know, we also wanted to talk about, you know, your wedding and recognizing, you know, some ways that you can, you can bring God into how you conduct your wedding and how you plan your wedding. Um, you know, one of the things that we did in our wedding was to have, um, our wedding was actually on a Saturday night after Sabbath had ended. And what we decided to do was to create a, a, um, a, a program because we knew a lot of our family was going to be there that weren't ne necessarily believers. And so we decided to have the best man and the maid of honor um, where they decided they were reading a narrative form of our, um, of our personal testimonies and how God led us together and bringing out those different things that we had done in our lives as well as in how we managed the reception and all those things. It wasn't all this dancing and all this kind of craziness going on. Um, and we wove in other different elements to still make it engaging and fun and all those different things. But we definitely want you to think about a lot of the ways you can bring in symbolism and use your wedding as a opportunity to showcase what God has done in your life and what you're expecting God to do through your marriage. And we feel like that's very, very important to actually take time to look at that. Where is that going to come out in your wedding service? Where is that going to come out not only in the sacredness of the service, but where is it going to come out in terms of how you have fun after you're married and what you're doing at the reception? A lot of people just think, well, once the wedding is over, you know, it's time to get down, you know. And reality is it's not just how you celebrate your, your wedding and how you conduct it, but it's also what you do afterwards. Now that we're married and we're ready to have fun, how do we do that as godly people? And it's very important that our family that are not believers can see that we are normal individuals. Just because I'm a committed seven-day Adventist doesn't mean I don't know how to laugh. I don't know how to have a good time. I don't know how to engage and be fun. And I'm not negating our relationship before I decided to join the church. But I also have to recognize that this is who I am. And I have to engage in that authentically and biblically. Very, very important. All right, well... Mama's giving me the sign off, so um, we're going to go ahead and pray um, and end our session. I just want to remind people again that um, we have a, I don't think we put the URL here, but if you have questions, um, those of you who are here before, you know that there's a website, it's a type form. Um, if you don't have it, you can come to me afterwards, I can give it to you, um, and we can look at the uh, different questions you may have in our sixth session on Sabbath afternoon. So let's go ahead and pray. As we end, Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, so much that we can think about this aspect of relationships and consider in a very special way that we don't have to feel controlled or boxed or stuck or trapped. And Lord, that we can focus on not disobeying, that we can focus on being true to what we know is right and what we believe to be the very best, and what we know that God can bless. And Lord, that we would leave all the pain and the worry and the costs to Jesus, to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. At the same time, help us, Lord, to do the necessary work to build a strong foundation for a marriage that would last unto eternity. But as we look at engagement and wedding, we still want Jesus to be a part of even those parts of our journey. We don't want to take them for granted. And so we pray, Lord, that with these 
this uh, small amount of counsel that we were able to give today, when you build upon this, may this spawn us to read, to think, to pray, and to reflect. This is our prayer. And we offer this prayer from our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.